0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom, or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Whee! Not a test, this is rock and roll.
2: Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DiRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cutt. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and
3: roll talk show, it's all about soul. One of rock's most creative and enduring genres,
2: psychedelic soul. Plus, we'll review new albums by Lou Reed and Jenny Lewis.
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news.
1: Don't stop believing. Hold on to that feeling. That is
3: Don't Stop Believing by Journey, one of 24 songs that a Brainerd, Minnesota woman downloaded last year and made available on her computer hard drive. She was indicted for internet music piracy and uh, decided to take the music business to court. Most people who have been subpoenaed in this way have settled out of court ahead of time for fines ranging from three dollars to $5,000. Jamie Thomas said, uh-uh, I'm not guilty, I'm going to trial. So a groundbreaking historic trial, Jamie Thomas ended up losing that trial, found guilty of copyright infringement, and uh, fined $222,000. <laughs> oh, man. So that's $9,200 per song, Jamie. Right. Now, the judge in that Minnesota case has said, you know what? I screwed up. I made a couple of mistakes in my instructions to the jury that may have swayed the verdict against Jamie Thomas. He's now saying that, A, I should not have told the jury that simply making those songs available on your hard drive constitutes infringement. What the prosecution, the music industry, must also prove is that somebody actually downloaded those songs. Mm. Secondly, he said that fine, that $222,000 fine, is completely out of line. There is no way she should have had to pay $9,200 per song. And uh, finally, he said, you know what? Copyright law in this country stinks. The Copyright Act is not addressing what is going on in the digital universe right now with people sharing
2: files all day, all the time. And he said it needs to be rewritten. It's frightening that the judge had already presided over this trial when he came to that conclusion. Clearly, you have a lot of people in the judiciary who are confused with where things stand with copyright laws. This week, the White House is talking about trying to appoint a copyright czar to uh, <laughs> help oversee, and that means work with big media, yeah. the entertainment companies, help oversee changes in the copyright laws, rewrite them. Of course, they're going to work hand-in-hand with the corporations, as I said, and, and, and favor them. Uh, it's a mess. It's a whole mess. Not to mention the fact the economy is collapsing. We're in the <laughs> middle of two wars and an upcoming election. And, and now's the time to worry about a copyright czar?
1: But it's business as you
2: A little bit of the Eagles' last album, a Walmart exclusive. The reason we're talking about Walmart is uh, they have announced that they are shutting down their digital rights management DRM server, thereby penalizing people who bought music from them that had this DRM encoding. A couple of months ago, they started selling DRM-free music from their big online store. But before that, everything came with this hidden code that prohibited you from uh, playing anything you bought on another one of your machines at home. Or if your hard drive crashed, you'd have to go and, and get it from them again with this coding, right? Simultaneously, the Yahoo Music Store is shutting down. All the music they were selling was with DRM coding. Uh, now there's going to be no Yahoo Music Store to support that. It's a giant slice slap in the face to people who actually paid money Downloaded this music, the record industry, in its paranoia about not wanting people to copy music, even if they bought it, pushed for this DRM uh, software, and and it's and now nobody's supporting it anymore. So you're just throwing your money away. Yeah, once again,
3: Jim, it's pretty hard to understand the uh, customer service record of the music industry in the last uh, decade or so. Here's an industry that seems to be going out of its way to tick off its customers and drive them away from actually buying music. You think about an industry that's suing its customers for file sharing that is introducing this spyware technology Mm. on the digital rights management uh, records that they were selling three years ago that were destroying computer hard drives around the world. This is not a very worthy track record for an industry that is desperate
2: for people to buy its products. Well, imagine buying a car, right, that you needed a special kind of tire to drive. The car manufacturer goes out of business and you can never drive your car again because you can't buy the tires.
3: of my bloody Valentine the uh, UK quartet uh, that reunited this year and has been going on a brief tour of the United States as a prelude to what people are saying will be a new record sometime in 2009, we're you know not holding our breath for that one. It's been 17 years since their last record, and who knows how much longer we're, we're going to have to wait. But yes, that last record was amazing, the 1991 release, Loveless. Very few people saw them back in the day. Very few people bought that record back in the day. But its reputation and the band's reputation have only increased in the years since it's gone. Jim, you very eloquently talked about the band when you did a desert. in Jukebox about My Bloody Valentine a few months ago. And we both agreed uh, in the spring that this was the most highly anticipated
2: tour of the year, certainly one of the most highly anticipated reunions of the year. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. It's a name we've dropped so many times on Sound Opinions, it it ought to get its own alarm bell, like Brian Eno or Timbaland. (laughs) But it is because that I, I, you know, after Nirvana, there was no more important band in the 90s in terms of, Opening up the ears of other musicians And people forwarding that sound Those guitars sounded like nothing else So yeah, I was anticipating a lot from this reunion, Greg Because it was Generation X's version Of a Sid Barrett Rocky Erickson, Brian Wilson meltdown. Right, Kevin right. Shields was a brilliant musician who had created this unique sound and then seemed unable to follow up his masterpiece. There were some problems with drugs. There, there was like an artistic paralysis and year after year the next My Bloody Valentine album is coming 2001, 2002. I talked to him in 2005. He assured me, you know, it was six months away mm-hmm. and nothing. Now they came back. What did they do though? You know, we saw them at the Aragon Ballroom here, one of I believe six cities in the States. I was hugely disappointed. There was not a single song that wasn't from Loveless, 1991, or the EPs that preceded it. You know, I mean, you've had 17 years and you don't (laughs) write a new song. You and I took radically different positions in our, our newspaper reviews. How, Mr. Cott, I ask you, how was this different from an Eagles reunion cash-in?
3: It was no different in their, in the respect that, they, yes, they played entirely old material. But here's the thing. The Eagles played to millions and millions of people. Everybody already knew those hits. But for My Bloody Valentine, it's a completely new audience for that band. So, yes, I think they're entitled to a little bit of a victory lap, a final recognition of what they accomplished 15 years ago because people are finally catching up with them. They get one turn to do that. The yeah. next time, I'm expecting new material. and. I have to say what I saw was an exemplary example of what they did back in the day I thought it was an ex- outstanding show I think those tones and microtones and overtones that they were getting from those guitars I mean I was hearing like bagpipes and illian pipes and Gamelons in the mix even though they weren't there on stage
2: <laughs> they were evoking those kinds of sounds look I saw them in 92 as you did and I didn't hear a band that was as strong this time as they were then you know for one thing Greg the entire digital recording revolution has taken place in the years where they were gone you could do samples and loops in 90 when they made Loveless with $5,000 you could buy a sampler that gave you 5 seconds of sampling time right and now with an old laptop you have a boundless universe of sampling power at your fingertips they they were using entirely old technology the keyboard loops that were so integral to Loveless sounded cheesy and dated so it wasn't like I, I didn't expect my bloody valentine to, to reinvent themselves but I wanted them to sound better than they did that night. You know,
3: I don't know what you were looking for because I thought the assault was on a scale. It was just much larger, much bigger. The volume was just oppressive in a great way. The final song literally the earth was starting to move the floor was moving i mean it was it was an amazing sensory overload it's a cheap trick and i'm not sure how they could have done it any better it was a
2: cheap trick you made me realize is one of their hallmarks they always ended their set with it it breaks down in the middle after a bit of a melody to 23 minutes of sheer white noise where all the members of the band the three strings players just play one chord Right yeah. through massive amplifiers and right. massive effects, and the drummer just does a roll on the cymbals. It's it's a twenty three minute crescendo. Any monkey with <laughs> with that guitar <laughs> amplifier could do that. It's it's a fun trick, but it's a cheap trick. And since when? I mean, there were people puking. There were literally people uh, sick to their stomach, and people leaving looking as if they'd gotten hit by a bus, right? Because they were not wise enough to wear yeah. the. the complimentary earplugs I mean you know it's like you know. so what that's not what I loved about My Bloody Valentine it was the nuance and subtlety of the music in addition to the power and that's what was missing
3: no it was there those melodies were inside that big envelope of of noise and I loved it
2: well I happen to know you went out for sushi before the show and I think you had one sake too many
3: That is The Temptations with Ball of Confusion. And what we want to do next is look into the genre of psychedelic soul that uh, that song so aptly defines. Many reasons for this, Jim, but uh, first and foremost among them was the uh, the recent death of Norman Whitfield, the producer of that particular Temptations track, and, and numerous others. One of the architects of the psychedelic soul movement, alongside a couple of luminaries in, in the late 60s. What he did was, as he said, I wanted to out-Sly Sly Stone. He, along with uh, Jimi Hendrix, Slystone, Stone, and now Norman Whitfield, were the guys who really built this genre. Whitfield said that Sly was definitely Sly, and his sound was his own. His grooves were incredible. He borrowed a lot from rock. He caught the psychedelic thing. He was bad. I could match him, though, rhythm for rhythm, horn for horn.
2: And that's what he did
3: with the Temptations on that particular
2: track. Although he was reluctant at first. It must be said, a lot of the Motown histories note that his first reaction was, quote, I don't want to get into all that crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. This is just a passing fancy. And then two weeks later, he began work on the first great Temptations psychedelic soul single, Cloud Nine. I'm going to leave the discussion of the Temptations for a bit because you mentioned Sly and you mentioned Jimi Hendrix. And actually, you know, I mean, in my view, there are three great avatars of psychedelic soul in round one, Jimi Hendrix, Sylvester Stewart, and the Temptations. One of my pet peeves as a critic is that Hendrix's entire career has been boiled down to he's the guy who played guitar with his teeth. Yeah. You know, you you listen to him on classic rock radio and you see the countless clips that you see on VH1 and all these documentaries history of rock and it's all about the showmanship without any discussion ever about the complexity of his music. Mm-hmm. What he was taking from free jazz, what he was taking from R&B, what came from soul, what came from uh, rock and roll. He had been a journeyman, sideman, you know, he'd played with Curtis Knight, he'd played with the Isley Brothers, he'd played with Little Richard. He was steeped in the R&B blues and soul traditions. And then in 1965 66, like so many American and British musicians, the sweeping cultural pharmacological (laughs) sociological movement of of psychedelia swept him up my first book was a history of psychedelic rock where i tried to draw the line from the mid-60s the early 60s to the present day and how this was a mindset that's continued as well as a sound and yes drugs are part of it but as many of the hundreds of musicians as i've interviewed when writing about psychedelia who said i took drugs and then the next day my whole vision of music changed there have been just as many who said i've never taken the drugs it was that spirit of a Imagination That swept through Hendrix did take drugs He was hanging out with the Fugs They were beatnik poets And barbarian musicians <laughs> uh, They turned him on to LSD And his worldview expanded And we got the Hendrix experience Again, as I said So much soul So much jazz So much blues in his music As well as the psychedelic fire Which we all know so well Ow! With Sly Stone, the guy was a DJ in San Francisco on the West Coast. He's playing Beatles music. He's playing R&B. He's loving them both. The Beatles turn psychedelic with Revolver and Sgt. Peppers in 66 and 67 and Sly's right with them and he doesn't see why these two things should not go together. If you listen back now to the early Sly and the Family Stone records I mean they were essentially Beatles-esque 60s pop songs mm-hmm, right. with two significant differences. Rather than the vocal melodies or you know keyboard or guitar being front and center in the mix, he placed the primacy on the snare drum, that backbeat and the bass. That's what makes the groove the center of the song, even as all this other stuff is happening. You know, simultaneously, Greg, to the changes in drugs that were happening, you had this phenomenal change in the recording studio. The birth of multi-track recording. This ability suddenly to just get four opened up the floodgates. And clearly Sly and the Family Stone on their records took advantage of it. And what's more, they embraced the hippie philosophy. Sly was buying into the utopian vision. You know, his ideal world there there were men, there were women, there were blacks, there were whites. It's important to remember that the Family Stone was one of the first really integrated right. bands, and that's what he's talking about in songs like Everyday People, Everybody is a Star and I Want to Take You Higher.
3: Yes, Jim, there was absolutely this utopian vision in in Psychedelia. But Hendrix and Sly eventually got to the darker side. We saw Hendrix performing that amazing version of the Star-Spangled Banner at Woodstock. We saw Sly turn much darker, and there's a riot going on. And we heard Motown turning darker. Suddenly, the producer's role gained a new prominence, and I think Norman Whitfield really epitomized that
2: in this track we're going to play next. It's the title track of one of the Psychedelic Soul albums that Whitfield produced for The Temptations. It's it's my personal favorite, because, you know, you're talking about an instant part on a six-inch slab of plastic. <laughs> that you know, at least if you're playing it on CD. Psychedelic Shack. Listen to this song. It's been called the first use of sampling because it opens up by using a little bit of a track. Uh, you, you know, basically the door is opening. You hear the door opening. Mm-hmm. Somebody's walking into a room, presumably of the psychedelic shack, and he's about to join the psychedelic party. The needle goes down on the record player. You hear this, and you hear a little bit of old Temptations. It's the first time, really, that a band is using one of its earlier recordings and giving it back to you. Mm-hmm. It's been called one of the earliest samples. And then all sort of hell breaks loose, but in a very good way. The party starts. Here it is, Norman Whitfield and the Temptations' Psychedelic Shack.
3: That is Psychedelic Shack, a psychedelic soul classic from The Temptations. We're going to continue our discussion of the genre on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media in a minute. And later on, we're going to review the latest albums from Jenny Lewis and Lou
1: Reed.
2: Back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are talking about the genre of psychedelic soul that emerged in 66, 67, really began to explode in 68, 69, so much so that you began to have parody recordings. Uh, Greg, (laughs) that was a little bit of Bill Cosby, who in 1968 put out a uh, psychedelic soul parody called Hooray for the Salvation Army Band. (laughs) Now, Norman Whitfield, the great psychedelic soul producer, was not only working with The Temptations, he did recordings with Edwin Starr and The Undisputed Truth, which also, I think, are great examples of psychedelic soul. Mm -hmm. You had Minnie Riperton and the Rotary Connection beginning to do stuff along those lines. Curtis Mayfield uh, was working some of it into his stuff. You know, war began to emerge later on. George Clinton and his various projects, which we'll talk about. It was beginning to become a trend, okay? And Hendrix was, of course, a worldwide superstar, and so was Sly. Cosby, among many other people in the music community, They didn't want, it wasn't chocolate and peanut butter. They did not want their soul and their R&B mixing with psychedelia. Mm -hmm. So you had people beginning to scoff and nevertheless it it continued. I interviewed extensively the great George Clinton about the birth of Parliament Funkadelic. I was really fascinated about how this guy who was working as a barber at the Uptown Tonsorial Parlor in (laughs) Newark, New Jersey, discovered psychedelia and it was 66 and 67. He would take the PATH train in to Manhattan and go to a club called the Cheetah. He said, I didn't buy all the psychedelic lights and the weird uh, designs and stuff, but you know, it was the era of free love, Jim, yeah. <laughs> and it was a good time to be hanging out, and all these hippie girls wanted to throw themselves at me. In time, Clinton and some of his friends actually met this uh, professor who had traveled down from Harvard. His name was Tim Leary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. And that's when George Clinton turned on. But he was getting in that direction. Anyway, because he was he was loving the psychedelic sounds that he was hearing, they uh opened early on for the vanilla fudge, and they saw these six foot tall Marshall Stacks, George's new band, the Parliaments, and he said. You know, now wait a minute. What could we do with those? Exactly, Jim. When you consider the way
3: Clinton's Parliament started out, you know, they they wore the nice suits and they were going to be a kind of a vocal group, Temptations, just like all those other acts, Temptations groups like the Vocal time. Group, yeah. Exactly. And and suddenly they're sharing bills as you said with people like the MC5. I mean, they they eventually uh, ended up in Detroit and and were one of those few bands that could actually share a bill with MC5. And then the next night, play a bill with the temptations. Mm -hmm. And everybody's going, who are these guys? What are they doing here? They did not fit in either scene. They were creating their own thing. And I talked to Clinton early on, too, when he was looking back on, on the formation of, of Parliament and Funkadelic, its side group. We're going to be the blackest, the funkiest. We're going to be dirty. That's what it was all about <laughs> for George at that time. It was all about differentiating themselves from all those other soul bands that were out there. And they were going to do it the underground way. They were not talking about going mainstream with this. This was going to be a underground band, and it was going to make willfully idiosyncratic music. George's big concept was to put black people where they didn't belong. I Mm -hmm. mean, where white society didn't see them fitting in. So he was writing songs about having a black man as the president of the United States, which, lo and behold, it may come true in a
2: couple of months, you know, only about 30 years later. Or or a black man in space. A black man in outer space. I remember he made a crack to me. You know, you you saw Uhura on Star Trek, but there was no (laughs) other black people in space, though, was his point.
3: Exactly. And so why not put... a 10-minute guitar solo behind a Marshall stack in a, in a black band. Why not go out on stage dressed in a diaper or a garbage bag <laughs> or your pajamas dress. Yeah. or with no clothes at all, as in yeah. some cases uh, George Clinton was wont to do? They were really pushing the envelope on all levels. The production techniques We talk about Norman Whitfield's Really advancing the idea Of how black records Were being produced And Clinton took that To the next level Uh, You know They were using These vocodered voices They were using These these tape loops, Backward effects Acid rock guitar solos They were throwing All of this into the mix And they really hit it On their third album Maggot Brain uh, Which was a Funkadelic record He had these two groups Going simultaneously Parliament Parliament and Funkadelic And Funkadelic Funkadelic was the
2: Dirty funk band Parliament
3: was doing More of the
2: concept records I have to i've never really been able to tell that you know to me there's only one p-funk groove and it's a p-funk party don't stop
3: (laughs) exactly and and the personnel was essentially the same on the the groups i mean he had eddie hazel on guitar he had bernie warrell this classically trained pianist on on synthesizer bootsy collins was playing bass on a lot of them i mean the man was working with some of the great musicians of, of that era and with maggot brain the third funkadelic record he really kind of nailed everything that he wanted to do on one record. If you listen to a track like "Maggot Brain," essentially a a showcase for Eddie Hazel, uh, basically an acid rock guitar solo that that could stand next to anything Jimi Hendrix did, yeah, or or any of the great you know white guitar players of that era. And then you finish with a track like uh, Wars of Armageddon, this basically 10-minute track that could have fit on a, a Pink Floyd record like "Ummagumma" or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, you know, you had the, the sound of barnyard animals and airplanes and cuckoo clocks uh, and trains playing out over this extended jam. And then a track that I think really illustrates what's going on here, like Hit It and Quit It. It's based around Bernie Worrell's keyboard playing, and at the end you've got this amazing uh, Eddie Hazel solo. It it sounds like a British Invasion track from the mid-'60s, except it's spiced up with all these psychedelic elements, all all these kind of studio tricks, and it's got this amazing groove. So now, not only do we have this psychedelic soul element going on, we've got the birthplace of what became known as funk. That dirty, that blacker than black, that sound that became known as funk throughout the 70s. Uh, Here we see George Clinton laying the groundwork for all of that on a song called Hit It and Quit It from the Maggot Brain record on sound opinions. Hit it and quit it from Funkadelic's Maggot Brain record. Uh, one of the uh, blueprints for uh, psychedelic soul and funk. Jim, I think there was a couple of other key groups in this second phase of the psychedelic soul era besides Parliament and Funkadelic. There were the Isley Brothers, who yeah. had been around already for about 15 years. They had, you know, had a huge uh, frat rock and soul hit in the 50s with Shout. And they were a fairly traditional R&B group throughout most of the 60s. But they transitioned into this harder-edged era of funk and psychedelic soul when Ernie Isley uh, finally was old enough uh, to join the group as a teenager. And Isley's guitar playing really redefined the group in a lot of ways. They went from a traditional R and B group into this mm. acid drenched entity. On the three plus three album, you can really hear it. Uh, they were transforming these covers. They were doing, you know, these soft rock songs like Seals and Crofts, Summer Breeze, and
2: really yeah. pouring acid
3: all over it. Ernie was just going nuts with his guitar. I got you know,
2: Eddie Hazel, Hendricks, and Ernie Isley belongs in that pantheon. Absolutely. And I think the the
3: defining moment for me with the Isley brothers was that guitar solo on Who's That? Lady, mm. that guitar solo sounds like nothing else. A lot of people thought it was Hendrix playing that solo, when in fact it was Ernie Isley, a, a young buck who came up underneath the influence of people like Hendrix, but was creating his own sound. I mean, this—it sounds like liquid gold on this song. Mm-hmm. I don't think there was a guitar tone quite like it anywhere else, and he clearly was taking this music from that sort of safer r and terrain into something more cosmic when he when he did this solo. key group in, in that early era, Jim, was, I think, war out of uh, Los Angeles. They were mm-hmm. a weird group because they were out of the ghetto, uh, Compton, California. But at the same time, they had this Danish harmonica player, Lee Oscar, mm-hmm. who was a, a virtuoso. And early on, they were joined by Eric Burden, who was in, in the band The Animals, which was a British invasion group playing uh, heavy R&B in the early 60s, had a bunch of hits. Burden got uh, went to Monterey, got influenced by the whole psychedelic thing, and, and sort of transformed himself into the psychedelic troubadour and, and hooked up with, with the band War. And, you know, Spill the Wine with Burden and War is one of the classic <laughs> yeah. stoner anthems of all time. A- and I think it sort of set the group off in this direction, because Burden later on left the group. They sort of peaked out with him a- as part of the group. They stopped having hits. They redefined themselves yet again and scored a bunch of hits, uh songs like Cisco Kid and Why Can't We Be Friends and the menacing low rider, yeah. uh, those are all songs that were clearly influenced by the whole idea that everybody was smoking pot, everybody was dropping acid, and th- these were like soundtracks to cruising the L.A. streets and, and highways and, and the back alleys of uh, East Los Angeles and Compton and Central L.A., and, and later on became sample material for numerous hardcore gangster groups out of that same area 20 years later.
2: Well, you know, Greg, we did another genre dissection show a couple of weeks back on heavy metal, and we were talking about how heavy metal really grew from psychedelia. If people like Bill Cosby dismissed black musicians adopting psychedelia as as not being true to their roots because they were ignoring the social problems around them, mm-hmm. it wasn't entirely true. You know, there was bad trip psychedelia as well. As with the good trip stuff, Sly got there first. There's a riot going on inspired by the turmoil that began to erupt in America in 68 and the, the race riots and the fight against uh, racism and injustice and those war the war going on in Vietnam. And and young black people as cannon fodder that began to come come into the music too. A lot of that Parliament uh, funkadelic stuff was very dark it and was, very yeah. cynical. War in its post burden incarnation certainly got there, and as I said, Sly got there too. So it wasn't just feel good music. Psychedelic was about a way of hearing the world in a very complex and and not one dimensional way. This was this was three D, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it, it addressed problems of negativity as well as positivity. Today in in the whole R and and hip hop world you know you kind of have people who who are making upbeat positive music they're dismissed as backpackers they're dismissed as hippies they're dismissed as uh, you know psychedelic wannabes and yet we've seen a tremendous amount of really creative music continue it, the psychedelic soul genre did not stop in 71, 72 yeah uh, you, it's echoes loom large
3: absolutely I mean, I think we have to talk about somebody like Prince for regenerating the genre in the 80s. You know, you look at a song like Raspberry Beret or an album like Parade, mm-hmm. and it's just drenched in, in, in that music and that particular sound. And, and, you know, we mentioned the the hip-hop or sampling uh, groups like War and, of course, The Temptations. Hip-hop itself became a a repository for the psychedelic soul impulse. You know, you think about a a record like Della Soul's Three Feet High and Rising. Yeah. I mean, that record was clearly influenced by something other than just water. Mm. Uh, You know, (laughs) I mean, Digital Underground out of Oakland was clear disciples of of Funkadelic with a song like The Humpty Dance. Uh, You can draw a clear parallel back to that. The collaboration between Dan the Automator and the rapper Cool Keith in the Dr. Octagon project mm-hmm. in, in the mid 90s, really a surreal uh, piece of work, a song like Blue Flowers, to my mind. Epitomized how psychedelic soul had moved into the hip hop era.
1: Doctor Octagon, paramedic fetus of the East with priests and from the church of the operating room with the strikes of force scalpel since the holocaust. I do indeed in greed explore meet the patients back to booms with the nurse with the voodoo curse. holding up office lights,
3: You can't even talk about a group like Outcast, creators of of the southern branch of of hip hop music throughout the '90s, but. Clearly influenced by Funkadelic, the psychedelic soul movement. You know, when you talk about tracks like BOB and Gasoline Dreams from mm-hmm. Stankonia, uh, drenched in psychedelia.
2: Yeah, it's like underground, underground, when I stop the like a
3: D'Angelo's voodoo, a record oh, yeah. we both loved talk about R&B picking up the thread. Uh, And I think there was a series of records, Jim, that were made around the time of D'Angelo's voodoo, around the turn of the century. You know, Erica Badu's Mama's Gun, Common's Electric Circus, Mm -hmm. a number of them involving the work of Amir Questlove Thompson uh, of The Roots. Uh, Those were clearly psychedelic soul records. And now we come up to the contemporary era where we've got bands like uh, Gnarls Barkley and, and Van Hunt. Again, primary exponents of psychedelic soul. It's like the last 40 years, you know, melted together and arrived here in 2008. And that sound is very much a part of the future of, of
2: R&B. One of our favorite things is to draw those connections. I think a lot of people were had their minds blown by Crazy, that huge hit by Narles Barkley, without any indication that this is really the continuation of, of 35 years of great music. <laughs> it right. It didn't come out of nowhere. Exactly. As exemplified
3: by the track we're playing right now, Narles Barkley with the song Crazy Tell us about your favorite psychedelic soul songs or to discuss anything we talk about on Sound Opinions, give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. After a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Jim and I are going to be back to review albums from the former Sound Opinions guests Jenny Lewis and Lou Reed. I
1: just knew too much
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is Acid Tongue, the title song from Jenny Lewis's new solo album. Jenny Lewis, perhaps best known as the lead singer in the indie rock band Rilo Kiley, which was formed in the late 90s with another uh, singer named Blake Sennett. Lewis and Senate were both child actors. Uh, had a long Hollywood careers before they decided to play rock and roll as teenagers and have been doing that band very successfully for 10 years. They were signed to a major label and last year put out a record called Under the Blacklight. But in between, Lewis has forged a a fairly healthy solo career, Uh, almost started by accident. She was asked to record her first solo record, Rabbit Fur Coat, by her friend Connor Oberst of Bright Eyes, who was uh, starting a new label called Team Love. Lewis forged a partnership with the Watson Twins, a vocal duo, and created a harmony-laden record that uh, harkened back to early soul ballads and, and the singing of Laura Nero. Now she's coming back with another solo record. Once again, Rilo Kylie has gone on a brief hiatus. And uh, she recorded it in California, sort of a a series of jam sessions that included some of her friends. Elvis Costello dropped in, the members of She and Him, Zoe Deschanel and uh, M. Ward, Chris Robinson of the Black Crows. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, everybody uh, who basically hangs out in California had a role in this record. At the same time, it is a record that was forged much more purposefully than the first solo record. Uh, She knew she was going to make this second solo record when a couple of the songs didn't work for that Rilo Kiley record. She saved them for herself, including the title song that we just played. And here's another one from the record. It's called Jack Killed Mom from the second solo record by Jenny Lewis, Acid Tongue on Sound Opinions.
1: When Jack was born, he winked at mom, her pretty face, was the first he saw, was Jack wrong cause he loved mom, things weren't bad, before they got worse, mom would pinch Jack it hurt. Mama
2: that is Jack Killed Mom, Mom from the new Jenny Lewis album, Acid Tongue on Sound Opinions. Greg, I think it is uh, pretty much an imagination of a collaboration between Randy Newman. And the White Stripes, <laughs> in terms of that incredibly wry, wickedly satirical murder ballad, as delivered, uh, you know, that Jack White loves to, to specialize in. It's one of numerous directions on this album. She is still a fan, Jenny Lewis, of that Laurel Canyon singer-songwriter sound of the '70s. A lot of echo of Linda Ronstadt on "Pretty Bird" and that incredible, haunting opening track, "Black Sand." Mm-hmm. Who's
1: gonna love him? When all
2: There's that that weird turn toward the White Stripes. She's even doing progressive rock, for goodness sakes. There's a nine-minute-plus medley mini-suite called The Next Messiah, which Jenny uh, inexplicably pronounces as The Next Moosiah. I don't know (laughs) if it has something to do with cows. I love this record. I love it to pieces. It was hard for me to understand why... Under the Black Light, the Rilo O'kylie album Their first major label disc was such a Pathetically soggy bid at Shameless commercial pandering Now I can conveniently blame the Incredible misstep of that album After the joy of Rabbit Fur Coat on Blake Sennett because uh, Rabbit Fur Coat was a great record She's back with another great record It's even more self-assured vocally I miss the Watson Twins but there's lots Of other stuff here that, that's great Even when we have uh, string sections Happening because it was recorded Quick and dirty in three weeks to analog. They sound very natural. It's all, you know, very immediate. I don't need the hip hop like roster of of guests. You know, she and him is cool. I don't need Evels Costello. I sure don't need Chris Robinson. Nevertheless, as far as I'm concerned, on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, this is a very enthusiastic buy it.
3: Yeah, Jim, I think you nailed it with the emphasis on the vocals. I think one of the things that was so great about Rabbit Fur Coat were those three-part harmonies between Lewis and the Watson twins. They're not present here, but again, this is a very uh, vocal-intensive record, and Lewis sings her heart out on a lot of these songs. She's taking a lot of chances. Uh, you referenced you know, Linda Ronsant, that Laurel Canyon singer-songwriter sound, I think, again, I think those soul records that she was listening to, the LaBelle records and the Laura Nero records from the early 70s, influenced this just as much. Uh, she's pushing her voice into a higher range here, really taking some chances. Initially, when I put uh, this record on and heard Black Sand for the first time, I was, I was thinking it was, it was the wrong record. It didn't sound like Jenny Lewis. And I think that was what was exciting about it in a lot of ways. You mentioned The Next Messiah. Again, a track like I've never heard before yeah. from, from Jenny Lewis. Totally unexpected, this three-part song, an eight-minute sweep. Uh, Sounds very live in the studio, which is exactly the way it was recorded. Taking a lot of chances here. You mentioned the artificiality of that last Rilo Kylie record. I'm not so quick to put the blame on blake senate i think lewis did that intentionally i think it was a failure i think it was also the pressures of being on a major label for the first time but this record trying is on to create Warner a Brothers. pop record yeah this record's on a major label as well but clearly she made this record with a lot different intent than she did that last rilo kiley record and i agree with you she's doing her best work as a solo artist rilo kiley i can take her leave rabbit fur coat genius record now we have another one Acid Tongue, which I think is very close, if not just as good, to Rabbit Fur Coat. So yes, an enthusiastic buy it for me as well.
4: How do you think it feels When you're speeding and lonely How do you think it feels When all you can say is If only If only I had
1: a little I had some
4: change if only, if only, if
2: only How
4: do you think it feels?
2: That's How Do You Think It Feels from the new go. recording of Lou Reed's classic album Berlin, a live record, which we don't often do here on Sound Opinions, Berlin, live at St. Anne's Warehouse. There's a good reason why we're doing it, and I'll, I'll get into that in a minute. Let me talk about the original Berlin first, uh, released in 1973. Discounting the pure perversity, the spit in your face, slap in your face perversity of metal machine music, uh, Greg, I think that the most difficult album in Lou Reed's long and often difficult career was Berlin. Yeah. A dense, dense concept album about a couple living in Berlin, codependent, dysfunctional, Physically abusive toward each other, addicted to sex, and addicted to speed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) On the road to destruction. Nice cheery topic. Uh, It arrived right after Transformer, which remains to this day the best charting, best-selling, poppiest Album of Lou Reed's career It was the album that gave us Walk on the Wild Side Mm -hmm. How does he follow it up He recruits Bob Ezrin Who at that point Is best known for His productions for Alice Cooper And the Alice Cooper Band Records Those big bombastic heavy metal records That made Alice Cooper's name He steals Cooper's band To some degree Steve Hunter the guitarist among them And he makes this Progressive rock concept album (laughs) that includes some of the most haunting songs of all time. I believe on one or two of our Halloween shows, we've played songs from Berlin where you have this baby bawling its soul out and and it's a song about this mother being such a horrible person that the authorities are stealing her kids or taking the kids to child well, oh it's horrible. Yeah. Uh we saw Lou Reed speak as the keynote speaker at South by Southwest in March in Austin and he was talking about the themes which he summed up as jealousy peaks of jealousy and how that (laughs) attachment to another person turns into physical abuse. Uh, okay, maybe for some people, Lou, not for not for most of us. Uh, he also went on to say that it was the most panned and reviled album of his time, nearly cost him his career. Now, that's a bit of revisionist history because two great critics, among others, Nick Kent and the late, great Lester Bangs, championed it. Lester called it the bastard progeny of a drunken, flaccid tumble between Tennessee Williams <laughs> and Hubert Selby Jr. of Last Exit to Brooklyn. He meant that as a compliment, he, you know, there can be uh, great, depressing art and it can have moments of beauty all right Lou Reed Three and a half decades later, decides to reclaim Berlin. He makes a concert film directed by Julian Schnabel, the great artist who's turned into a filmmaker, and he makes a live recording, Berlin Live at St. Anne's Warehouse, 35-piece ensemble, including strings and the Brooklyn Youth Choir. It's directed by Steve Hunter, that Alice Cooper guitarist who went on to play with Reed, made Metal Machine Music with him. Members of Reed's original band uh, or current band, Fernando Saunders, and Ezrin and Hal Wilner are back. To produce. What do we get? This is a really interesting concept for Lou Reed to, to reclaim this and try to make it current today. Let's play a track from it and we'll give our opinions on how he fared. This is uh, one of the big songs that wrapped up the album at the end. It's called Sad Song from Lou Reed's new Berlin live at St. Anne's Warehouse on Sound Opinion.
4: Staring at my picture book She looks like Mary Queen of Scots She seemed very regal to me. Just goes to show how wrong you can be.
1: I'm going to stop. We had a
3: sad song from uh, Lou Reed's new album, Berlin, Live at St. Ann's Warehouse, finally bringing that 1973 album back into uh, the public sphere. Reed was reluctant to even perform much of this record in concert uh, because it was so reviled at its time. It took him 25 years just to get it out on CD. Yeah. So uh, the, the record uh, certainly is overdue for another look. And, and, and this is a great way of doing it. He's assembled, as you said, a great cast of, of backing musicians. Bob Ezrin, the producers up there directing the orchestra. You've got this choir. Uh, you've got this great band. And then you've got Lou Reed at the center of it all, bringing back this very, as you so eloquently put it, Jim, a harrowing piece of work, a mm-hmm. uh, very difficult record to listen to on a lot of levels, and at the same time uh, a beautiful record and, and at the same time a heartbreaking one. And I think you know this whole theme of jealousy uh, taken to its extreme – I initially thought this is redundant. I mean, the, the first album is great. People should go back and get that. They really don't need the soundtrack. I think the real entry point here is that concert film, which is really well done. It's fascinating to watch. But the performances here, I think, have a new nuance and empathy that maybe even the initial record didn't have. And I was particularly struck by the way Lou Reed performs the song, Carolyn Says, Part 2, one of the most intense emotional performances of his career. Really moving stuff. The empathy he has for this woman and what she's going through really comes across in that performance. And I was said, you know, here it is. He's looking back on this work more than 30 years later, and he's bringing a new set of eyes and ears to it. It's almost like a new work in in his hands now. And to my mind, he has, in fact, created... This masterpiece and recreated it and 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 made it feel like a masterpiece, like a, yeah. a lost masterpiece, a recording that never got its due. I, I and will now say, a new
2: appreciation for it. I think you're better off buying Lou Reed uh, Berlin Live at St Anne's Warehouse than Berlin because Ezra who went on to record Destroyer for Kiss and The Wall for Pink Floyd, mm-hmm. he was the master of 70s bombast. I do not think the original Berlin was a very good-sounding record. Ezrin said he he was tempted to commit suicide himself <laughs> with the tortured recording of that album. He hated it. Reed hated it. Most critics, Lester Bangs and Nick Kent aside, hated it. Everybody hated it, in part because it was a botched attempt. The emotion was was severe, but... I think that the sound sank it. Now you have it done, even though Ezrin's still involved. This is really Hal Wilner. Hal Wilner's the master of recording live instruments played live by great musicians, and he doesn't mess with it. I, I think that, that this sounds better in many ways than Berlin, which sounds horribly dated. It was dated the day it came out. Yeah, I think you're right about the orchestrations
3: on the original Berlin. Uh, they sounded almost pasted on, and, and they were kind of jarring, but now it's much more integrated. So I think we've got a double buy A on double buy. Berlin. Good to have Lou Reed back. What do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we have a fascinating interview with uh, Oliver Sacks, uh, the famed author and physician who wrote a fascinating book called Musicophilia
2: and, and the effect that music
3: has on everyday lives and the afflictions that it can sometimes cause.
2: We have some thank yous to say, Greg. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, And our fearless leader, our executive producer, a man we like to consider soul brother number one, dealing with the ball of confusion that is Sound Opinions. Tory Southside Malatia.
1: I call you from my hotel room. I'm sitting on the hallway floor.
3: On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline 1 888 859
1: 1800. You only call me when you're talking.
0: New
4: messages Hey this is Victor Litvinenko from Raleigh North Carolina and I just got done listening to your interview with Joan as policewoman and I had this vision of soldiers going into battle with violins. If you were talking about it. she chose it because it looked like a machine gun and I thought that vision was pretty hilarious and also it kind of worked I grew up in times where they offered musical instruments in the third grade in public school, you know, and they came and did an assembly of violin viola, cello and bass, and thankfully I picked the violin, probably because it looked the most like a machine gun <laughs> anyway, thanks a lot, it was awesome I love it, thanks again
1: Wild
0: with my bed. Hi, my name is Sharon Powell, and I'm calling from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, last night I was listening to your show, and you reviewed the new Metallica album. And it, uh, just listening to some of that Metallica from the 80s brought back this very vivid image for me of being a junior in college, and working one summer in inner city Houston doing direct service kind of work, and I met someone, a kid from the neighborhood there, and we became friends, and we created music tapes, and I gave him the Dead Milkman, and uh, he gave me Metallica. I listened to it on my Sony Walkman, and um, we're driving around the back of a pickup truck doing food deliveries rainy and uh, gray and then we were driving around in this kind of dilapidated neighborhood listening to that Metallica. It was a perfect soundtrack. So thanks very much.
4: Hello, my name is David Kennedy, and I'm from Austin, Texas. Some say it's the music capital of the world. Though I live here, I can't 100% say that that is true. Some of my favorite bands never seem to come here. But I do look forward to listening to your show. I think it's wonderful. I don't think a person has to agree with the things you have to say or even agree with your tastes in music, but I think it's worth it because it gives us a, a, a palette of things to choose from. But I'm calling today, which is something I don't normally do, because of something that I heard on your answering machine beeps, which is the opinions of your listeners. And someone had called saying that one of the bands that you uh, gave an outstanding review to was a rip-off band of The Doors.
0: Uh, Regarding your commentary on The Walkman, I think you left out the key thing, which is they basically
4: sound like a Doors rip-off. Me and myself personally... I um, don't understand why anybody would say that about something like The Doors. I would think that when a band as incredible as The Doors separates, breaks up, or if members die, the true thing, that uh, you'd be happy that there was someone trying to imitate them. That includes The Beatles or any other great band from the past. I myself look quite forward to people trying to imitate and copy Glenn Danzig, whether it be with his work in The Misfits, Sam Hain, or what he... Has done in the last 10, 20 years. So a ripoff band, honestly, would be a band that sucks, that is imitating a band that exists today. And we can definitely say without a doubt that your wonderful show is not a ripoff of anything. Thanks, guys. Keep it up. I'm proud of you. And I can't wait to listen to the next shot.
2: No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, one 859 We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.